0: Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja
1: Radio. Hello Lime Ninjas. This is Lime Ninja Radio where we help you navigate confidently through your own personal Lime journey. Everybody's journey is different and a cookie cutter approach just doesn't work for Lyme disease. You need ninja skills. I'm your host and acupuncturist McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 123 with UK Lyme expert, Dr. Gene Monroe. Also with us in the studio is our certified show producer and the brains behind Lyme Ninja Radio, Aurora.
2: Hello, and in this episode, you will learn the three studies Breakspear Medical has published about Lyme, the length of time that Dr. Monroe recommends for antibiotic treatment, and Dr. Monroe's protocol for Lyme disease using artesanate.
1: Yes, indeed. Also, you will notice if you've been over to LymeNinjaRadio.com, we have a new design. It's more mobile-friendly and loads faster and we're really excited about it. So if you haven't seen it, go ahead over to com, Check it out. We'll be porting over our old pages. There's some with the old design still there buried deep in the site. But the newer ones all have the new design. And I think it looks pretty snazzy. <laughs>
2: It does. Very sharp.
1: <laughs> also there, you can sign up for our email course on genetic nutrition. goes over the basics. And there's a little link there also underneath the featured episode on the homepage to subscribe to Lime Ninja Radio. And there are three levels for every budget. It's just a small way for you to say, yes, we love Lime Ninja Radio, and we want to help you keep it on the air. And with that, Aurora, who do we have to thank this week? Hmm.
2: To This week we have a big shout out to Adriana and Matt for subscribing. Thank you guys so much.
1: Thank you. We appreciate the love and support. Okay, Aurora, why don't you tell us a little bit more about today's guest?
2: Internationally recognized in the field of allergy and environmental medicine, Dr. Jean Monroe is the medical director and founder of the privately owned Breakspeare Medical Group. In addition to treating patients at Breakspear Medical, Dr. Monroe lectures regularly at conferences around the world, supervises hands-on training of university and college students specializing in nutrition, and is often asked to write medical articles for various magazines.
1: Thank you, Aurora. Here is our interview with UK Lyme expert, Dr. Jean Monroe.
0: Well, in that case, I'll I'll tell you that um, I'm a physician. Um, I trained in, in London, and then I was very interested in neurology, so my work expanded into doing research in multiple sclerosis and migraine at our National Hospital for Neurological Diseases. And um, because with migraine, there is a strong connection between food and migraine, I began to be interested in environmental provocants, particularly gastrointestinal ones like foods. But also in migraine, people can react to uh inhaled allergens, um perfumed things can provoke headaches in them. Sometimes then it's known that they can react adversely to um uh lights like strobe lights uh, because they can that can provoke epilepsy but can also provoke migraines. So in fact frequencies interested in me as well. And uh, the research, therefore, progressed into looking at other environmental impacts on individuals uh, causing other illnesses. Not just migraine, but also other illnesses and frequencies and uh, chemicals, as well as uh, food sensitivities, all all, uh, are part of a continuum of environmental provocance in a broad spectrum of diseases. So that was the reason why I was focusing on environmental illness. Um, Environmental illness is also uh, um, compounded by environmental things we encounter in the way of infectious agents. And so one has to consider those. We worked here at Breakspear with um, a, a, a doctor who is a rheumatologist uh, and uh, this is in the early 2000s and so on. So he uh, was seeing a lot of patients with infections uh, causing their rheumatoid arthritis. And it's clear that that was a major component in those people, including, of course, Lyme. So we became...
1: Uh, uh, a- allow, me, allow me to interrupt here because that's not clear to most of the medical community. That a lot of these rheumatoid arthritis cases are caused by infection. What enabled you to see that particular connection? I mean, oh,
0: well, it was working with Professor uh, Terence Damond, and he was focusing on treatment of Lyme um, and um, was seeing uh, patients here. We did the tests for Lyme, and many of the people with rheumatoid had Lyme. So in fact if you look at autoimmune diseases and what causes them, very often it is an infectious component. Sometimes it's foods as well.
1: And obviously it can be a combination of the two, yeah?
0: Yes, and combinations, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Brilliant.
0: So um, we've seen probably some several thousand people here with Lyme in the last few years. And um, some of them have recovered completely and are well um, with treatment. Others we have to treat uh, them from the point of view of Lyme. But it's very rarely uh, that we treat them only for Lyme because those people who have become ill often require uh, us to consider other impacts, why they ill and what else is making them ill at the same time.
1: So, What other impacts do you see commonly there in the U.K.?
0: Food sensitivities, very commonly, um, because they will produce what are called immune complexes around the body, and it's rarely an isolated problem. It's rarely just the Lyme. Um, We also find that there are other infectious agents, um, things like Epstein-Barr virus, and uh, we sometimes find that if people have been living in a rural place, they've got a, a, a Lyme Borreliosis, but they've also been perhaps living in a damp house. They've been exposed to moulds. They've got mycotoxins in them. We have to clear those. So uh, mycotoxins can cause major problems in the body as they're amongst the most uh, noxious naturally occurring uh, toxins that we encounter.
1: They are deadly, aren't they?
0: They are. Mm.
1: Now, here in the States, awareness of Lyme, I I like to say that Lyme is diagnosed over the backyard fence. Even with... what you would think of more awareness here in the standard medical community, it's still dismissed as something that's difficult to get, easy to treat, and therefore nothing to, to really worry about. And so we're, even here, we're left to back channels finding treatment and finding doctors who are willing to take a look and even, even test for the disease. Now, okay. how is the, how is the diagnostic climate there in the UK?
0: Well, um, it's it's uh, limited uh, because in the UK we have the NHS, which is the National Health Service, which offers the predominant treatment to the majority of people. If they want to find something outside the NHS, it's difficult to for them to do so. Uh, but nevertheless, they're... they're they do find their way to getting diagnoses. It's thought, well, it's known from calculations um, that were done by the the, uh, um, Lyme, the Cordwell Lyme Co. that 45,000 people a year in this country um, uh, contract Lyme. So, that means that one in 20 people could be at risk of catching Lyme disease in their lifetime in the UK.
1: That's a significant number.
0: It is, but that's calculated from evaluations that were undertaken as a a survey. And so, we think that that is very significant, particularly because the... Uh, Infections are thought are dismissed quite a lot. Uh, One of our group here is Professor Bassand Puri, and he and one of the patients actually um, have just published a paper uh, on the inadequacy of the actual tests. They say that only sixty percent of the tests. Uh, catching the Lyme uh, organism, uh, 40% of them are inaccurately underdiagnosed.
1: And, uh, do you and that's,
0: you- uh, that's a publication which has, uh, has been done from statistical analyses.
1: And is the testing there in the UK the two-tiered ELISA then Western blot as well?
0: Well, often yes but they're saying that it misses 40% of the cases.
1: Right, right, right. We some of the estimates here that I uh, that are fairly old now, but the Department of Health in New York State estimated that it was as high as sixty percent miss. Uh,
0: well, this has been just published uh, last week, uh, and uh, we can send you the contact.
1: That would be lovely. We'll make sure to put that in the in the show notes. I was at a. Conference at Sinai Medical School in New York City about two months ago, two and a half months ago. And there's starting to be serious research groups looking at new testing. And there was one group, and forgive me, I don't remember which institution they're affiliated with, but the young man, the young PhD stood up and, in a polite scientific way, said, I can't believe that you're still using these tests. He said, your technology is 40 years old and I was, I'm was i moving over from the AIDS research community and what you're doing is uh, medieval.
0: <laughs> yes, yes.
1: So oh, nice. there's, my, there's hope I, on the way.
0: Well, that's encouraging. My, my own strengths are clinical. We have to use what tests we can get. We do use... Um, polymerase chain reaction PCR test to try to identify the Lyme organisms but the problem is that the Lyme organism is not often in the sample of blood that we take because it's buried in a tissue somewhere yeah, exactly. um, so we're not, uh, we're not here so cruel as to keep taking biopsies <laughs> 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 so, so, however I think some of the British data may be of use to you I'll just give you a few facts, please. Um, right then, uh, they've looked at the number of ticks in dogs in Great Britain, and what they did is they looked at 173 veterinary practices and checked that the, the dogs there, and of the 3,500 dogs. Eight hundred and ten of them had at least one tick. so they then checked for uh, the a, a separate thing was looking at the ticks, how many of the ticks were infected, and the, a very large proportion of the ticks that they were captured in this country were found to contain lime. So you can say that as dogs are a companion animals to us, um, we are very likely, uh, if we're pet owners, to be exposed to ticks, if I can put it like that.
1: Absolutely. And that's Um, one of the interesting things here as well. There's a parallel. I don't have as rigorous a study as you. We have a, a small vet in the area was posting numbers last year and toward the end of the year they had through their small, just one vet clinic, 645 diagnosed cases of Lyme through dogs. And at the same time in the same County, the public health people documented 37 cases of Lyme disease in human beings. And that's for the entire County. And there must be two dozen vet clinics throughout the entire County. It's, it's the, the, Dissonance between those two numbers is just staggering.
0: Well, that's right, particularly as of these three and a half thousand dogs, 72% of the ticks uh, had particular types of the uh, the exodes, um, rassinus, and 50% of the vets reported infested dogs. So it's actually a huge number. And uh, so I'll tell you two other facts. please. they, they trawled with, with blankets, you know, sort of tra- tra- trawling through uh, car park car-, car parks in our uh, um, uh, lake district, which is part of the UK yeah,
1: yeah. where there
0: are a lot of woods. and they found 17,000 ticks. On a one-day trawl of the car parks, uh, and the largest proportion of those uh, carried Borrelia. So they trawled the car parks where people are likely to stop off on their route to somewhere else, and or even when they're visiting the area. So it's just that that's a very important factor. And one more, uh, just. <laughs> All alarmist, but
1: nevertheless
0: <laughs> <laughs> useful, yes. um, and that is that they checked the uh, blood transfusions uh, in a from a facility in Scotland, and a quarter of the blood transfusions had antibodies to um, the uh, Borrelia. Yes. So you can't ignore the fact that this is an underdiagnosed condition. Some people who, who are presenting with the ex, a, acute presentations medically uh, are picked up. A lot of them are not picked up because nobody thinks to look. Right. Um, so I just think that that's um, that's actually very useful to, to perhaps to know. I think that um, the. The other things that we know here is that from our patients, a lot of our patients are treated with pulsed antibiotics because the Lyme organisms don't develop resistance to penicillin or other antibiotics, they develop persistence. So what we do is to give a treatment, pause, then those that are... Uh, amongst the sort of persisters, which are actually in hidden forms, come out because we've killed all the ones that are loose, so to speak, and uh, you, you give them another treatment. So with this type of pulsed treatment for persisters, we've found uh, a great deal of success in treating our patients. And that's sometimes even with a simple antibiotic like uh, um, like penicillin. But in fact, trip, we often use triple antibiotics.
1: Right, that was going to be my next question.
0: Yes, and we use um, triple antibiotics. We often use daptomycin, um, metronidazole, and uh, I, either doxycycline or tetracycline with it. And that combination, though, requires somebody to be in our vicinity because the daptomycin is intravenous. However, we still have quite a lot of people attending us who come with an acute presentation. You know, they've just been bitten. We give them a treatment immediately. We check the tick by seeing if it itself is harbouring the Lyme organism uh, with a specialist laboratory. But we treat them immediately. And if it hasn't got the organism, then they can stop the treatment. But if it does have the organism... They continue for a month and often if you have got it early you don't need to have prolonged treatment but if the patient is coming late then you need to have prolonged treatment and the reason is that antibiotics need to be given to to kill the organisms depending upon the mode of action of the antibiotic and the rate of multiplication of the organism. Well, the multiplication of the Lyme organism is once in 24 to 36 hours, so you have to consider that that's probably when it's at its most vulnerable. And you have to therefore think, what would I do for somebody with, say, a staphylococcal infection, where the multiplication might be once every 10 minutes or 20 minutes, you'd give them a 10-day course of antibiotics. So for for Lyme, to use the commensurate length of treatment, it would be 10 months.
1: Very interesting. Now, what do you consider late in coming to you?
0: Oh Well, I mean, if somebody has had an infection, uh, a bite, perhaps a rash following it, they begin to feel unwell, and then they haven't come to us so that, it, then they just uh, sort of thought, oh, well, you know, it's some sort of uh, tropical malaise I've caught because I <laughs> went. <laughs> uh, then then uh, they might come three months later. Okay. And so we then would say, oh, well, we need to have a, a treatment that will a- address this in a more protracted way.
1: Yes, I was fortunate. I was treated within about three days. And uh, and it made all the difference in the world. It was just
0: awesome. dumb Yeah,
1: well, dumb luck. I had the bullseye rash. It was unmistakable. And the the clinician, the emergency room clinician, took a look at my arm and said, well, you know, we, we'll test your blood for it, but you've got the rash, so we'll go ahead and treat. But I've heard stories <laughs> where even people with the marathine uh, – erythema migrants uh, don't get treatment. They just refuse to take a look at it. Oh, we can't have Lyme here. We're we're in Arizona or Colorado or some, some state like that. And the the unwillingness to consider the diagnosis is 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 maddening. Now how do how do clients, patients find you in the UK? Do you advertise? Are they coming from all over?
0: Well, we we have a, a website in which we mention that we do treat people with Lyme, but in fact, I think that websites are being overtaken by um, by social media groups that uh, are are propounding their comments, and sometimes we have an immediate comment, sometimes we don't, sometimes it's uh, um, much more. Um, a debate going on in the, in the public sphere, mm-hmm. but also here, just for your interest, our care Quality Commission, which is one of the organizations which um, monitors facilities, uh, has given us a registration uh, which is approves everything that we do, the status of the facility, and uh, the Care Quality Commission is the arbiter of which facility is considered uh, acceptable uh, in the public domain. They're, they're advertising now also um, an invisible conditions campaign. And they're saying that people with long-term conditions, um, they're asking people to contact them. And they consider Lyme as one of the things that people should be reporting to them.
1: Oh, that's wonderful.
0: Yes, so they're beginning to recognize uh, that they they want people with their invisible conditions campaign to be reporting lying to them. So um, we, we have... Um, a number of people whom we've treated here with our own protocols as well for for many years we've been aware of um the work that uh, uh, of the way in which arteminate which is a product from um the Artemisia plant can help And uh, I'll tell you a little historical information about this in case it's of interest. Please. Um, Okay. Well, many years ago, uh, we were working with artesanate, and I knew that it could possibly be of benefit to people with intracellular organisms. Now, intracellular organisms include malaria. Uh, and so one of our doctors went off to Nigeria armed with a little bit of uh, artesanate which he had in the form of a spray and he captured some of the children uh, in attending a, a children's hospital there and with permission was giving them an artetinate spray into their mouths. But there, of course, to diagnose malaria, you have to have a a blood film. So he did the blood film at the beginning, used artesanate spray into their mouths for for four days, and then did another blood film, and the malaria was eradicated. So when we got that information, we were hoping with joy, and we immediately gave the information to the World Health Organization, saying, here is a cure for malaria and they said with great joy, right, well we must call in Glaxo and see what they think about it and we said, well what's it got to do exactly with Glaxo? And they said, well we, we must make sure that the, uh, that there's no resistance to the artesianate that you've been using and that if it's used with something else, then there is a protection for the artesanate and the person. So they made a combination product and put that out onto the market. And artesanate is now the number one treatment for malaria worldwide. But the interesting thing about this is that uh, we then thought, well, artesanate has been effective for an intracellular organism. We can use it for Lyme for the intracellular forms of Lyme or the associated illnesses like babesia. Yeah,
1: babesia, of course.
0: And so we've had testinate here as a part of our protocol since uh, 2000, um, and uh, it's been an extremely effective drug. So we use 20 milligrams four times a day of this preparation uh, as an adjunctive treatment to the other antibiotic.
1: And is the mechanism known? For yes, it is,
0: what it does is the artesunate splits iron. This is a simple explanation.
1: Yeah, it splits
0: <laughs> iron and oxygen where they are loosely bound, which is mainly in the red cells, and the oxygen is available to kill off the organisms because it oxidizes them to death. So, uh, it is an extremely effective intracellular antibiotic. So, so that's the way in which it works, and it's um, it's one of the the great joys of our life here that we've been able to use this for so many people.
1: Have you ever used it with hyperbaric treatments? Well, of with,
0: uh, with hyperbaric oxygen, yeah, we uh, we haven't used that here. Um, uh, we we have been interested in hyperbaric oxygen, but we haven 't used it
1: right and there's beginning to be some interesting work with uh, cancer and hyperbaric and with ketogenic diets and it seems to be a similar type of uh, respiratory well in, in the in the excuse me in the cancer there's some thinking that uh, part of that is a respiratory mitochondrial respiration issue, and that if you're able to get the oxygen back into the the system and get the mitochondria stopping fermentation and working back in in with the pyruvate and be other pathways, then, then the cells, can, some of them can be rescued if not killed off by the immune system. So it's, just, it's interesting that here, here again we find a little tidbit where oxygen and perhaps respiration is playing a role in some of these persisting infections. So it's remarkable.
0: Yes, well, I think that uh, what we do here is to measure oxygen. And the way in which we measure it is not by just putting a little clip on the finger, which just tells you about capillary oxygen. Yeah. We measure how much it comes out of the capillaries into the tissues.
1: How do you do that?
0: This is absolutely brilliant work. And it's done by a very uh, erudite uh, specialist, Dr. Peter Julu, who works here. And he measures the amount of oxygen that comes out of the capillaries into the tissues. And he can give the relationship with the amount of tissue oxygenation and tissue carbon dioxide. So if you've got a low carbon dioxide, then you don't get enough oxygen mm-hmm. coming across from the blood vessels.
1: Exactly.
0: exactly. And we can reverse it. So what we do is to look at uh, tissue respiration as a part of our standard protocol here and um, we can correct either low co2 or high co2 or low oxygen we use we don't use direct oxygen because it can be toxic mm-hmm. what we use is an oxygen concentrator which gives people uh, a slightly enriched oxygen to breathe. So the oxygen concentrator will uh, take nitrogen and and oxygen that are in the air and extract a little bit more of the oxygen to go with the nitrogen into uh, people so that they can be breathing enriched air, really.
1: That's that's amazing work. That's one of the things that I've been curious about. I just use a little pulse (laughs) oximeter in my practice. I don't have a fancy facility like you do. And in general I find the the Lyme patients to be slightly deficient in their in their just their blood oxygen. And it's very
0: important to do the carbon dioxide though, because if it gets a low carbon dioxide
1: it can't transfer.
0: It, it can't transfer. And the second thing is, they are these are the most ill people because they've got very poor mitochondrial function because there's no oxygen getting into the tissues. Ah. Because they can't do it. Now, the way to measure that, if you haven't got a, a machine to measure CO2, obviously in hospitals, they can measure arterial uh, gases, but you just measure the bicarbonate level. If the bicarbonate is very low, in the blood, they've got a low CO two, and then you have to use a rebreathing mask. There, there are some transcutaneous monitors available, and they're not too expensive.
1: I'll, I'll have to look into that because I, I, wanna. You know this, and I think many people don't know that carbon dioxide is a signaling molecule in the respiratory Absolutely. process, and. Without sufficient carbon dioxide, the oxygen essentially just loiters, waiting for instruction of where to go, and that's gross oversimplification. But the
0: yes, absolutely excellent—that's perfect description.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so, so that's this is all very, very exciting to me, uh, and I'm, we, I'm so so glad we it. we stumbled into this line of uh, conversation.
0: Okay, there's one other thing that we often do, and um, we, we use whole-body hyperthermia. Now, mm-hmm. just to explain a little bit about this, we use uh, a near-infrared source of heat, uh, because if you use far-infrared and you have something very close to the body, the person is too much exposed to electromagnetic fields. So my interest is in making sure that they have a near-infrared source of heat which we have. We screen the, the uh, heat provision with a water jacket so that they can get near-infrared. That actually upregulates the amount of uh, activity in the mitochondria by maybe a half even. Uh, for the time being, but it also is um, kills off the Lyme organisms. So we're doing several things with hypothermia. We can reach temperatures of 38, 39, which we have found is quite effective in minimizing organisms. Um, we use moderate hypothermia to sweat out pollutants, and that works very well, and also, the near-infrared source is a mitochondrial upregulated almost immediately. And so if somebody hasn't even got a hyperthermia, if they can have a near-infrared source of light, this will upregulate the mitochondrial function.
1: Like a nice wood stove? <laughs> I'm not well, sure what the, the wavelengths are on that.
0: <laughs> well, I think I'll have to look it all up, but I'm, I'm not... I'm not that much of an expert on all the <laughs> physics, but I just can tell you that we have had experts giving us advice. And we use a piece of equipment called uh, an um which is, is brilliant. It comes from uh, Germany, um, and it was invented there at the time when the East and West were uh, were separated, and they didn't have any drugs In the east, so the chap who invented it thought, "Well, I better get on with treating myself. I've got a very, I'm very ill. I can't get up even." So he sat there and thought about what to do, and he invented this equipment. Um, And uh, his name is Bonarden. And the Irotham is an absolutely brilliant piece of equipment. If it's available in the in the states, it's it's fantastic.
1: I know there are quite a few people, and I have a uh, infrared sauna in my office as well that uses uh, – my particular uses uh, all three wavelengths of the infrared, so some near, mid, and far. And yes. qu- quite a few of the Lyme patients use some sort of infrared therapy, and, and all report generalized benefit from it. Uh, it, it, it is, and it's, a, it's it's easy to do. It's you know it's it, I and it does up regulate the mitochondria. It does detoxify. It, there's so many good things from it. So that's encouraging to hear that you're using with such good results as well in a in a clinical setting.
0: Well, we also use oxygen at the same time with it. Mm. It's called oxygen multi-step therapy. Uh,
1: and then but- and so explain that please.
0: Well, when they're having the, um, the uh, heat therapy, they also use oxygen and uh, we can increase the metabolic rate of usage of things. We put in afterwards infusions if, or a lot of fluids to restore health and then we also target uh, their requirements with glutathione and so on in that case. So we use an oxygen multi step therapy with the RFMs and a restitution of all the nutrients needed for their detox programs.
1: Absolutely brilliant. Now, if a person listening to this is inspired, says, I have to go consult with Dr. Monroe, how would they contact you?
0: Oh, well, we're just sitting here at
1: Brakespear
0: in, <laughs> <laughs> in the UK. I think, you know, if, they, if you look up Brakespeare, they can probably find us.
1: So look them it's up. It's Thank you. And we'll be sure to put a link to your clinic in the show notes as well. Dr. Munro, you've been very generous with your time Uh thank you for what you're doing in the UK. It takes some courage to step outside what the mainstream is doing and to withstand the, the slings and arrows and the comments that, that come your way, I'm sure. And it, it, It needs to be acknowledged. You're doing such a great service. And, you know, the old joke is that the, the pioneers are shot in the back by the settlers. (laughs) So you're out there. You're the pioneers out there. I don't think the settlers have quite come around yet, but at some point soon, there's going to be a mad rush of interest in Lyme disease and treating it. And the, the establishment will pretend that they've been there all along and uh, just want to make sure that you get your, your thanks and and here, here in the U.S., we have a slang we call props. We'll give you your props.
0: Oh, well, that's really kind of you. Uh, my, my interest in, in, is our patients have mostly benefited very much. We can't always guarantee to help everyone. But in general, we work as far as we're able to resolve their problems and uh, you know we've got quite a few miracles—people up and out of wheelchairs and so on. So we're very pleased, and I'm I'm very pleased to have had the opportunity of speaking to you. And thank you so much for sharing with me.
1: You're very welcome.
2: This was this was a really great episode interview to listen to. You know the what what you were talking about with oxygen and carbon dioxide levels.
1: It's fascinating, it was isn't it? It's
2: fascinating. Yes. Yeah.
1: We normally think of oxygen as just being something that's depleted in the body, and so you need to throw more at it. What we forget is that oxygen needs to be guided into the tissues, and to do that, it needs carbon dioxide. So essentially, carbon dioxide tells the oxygen, and this is greatly oversimplified, but the presence of carbon dioxide signals to the red blood cells that this is where the oxygen needs to go. So without enough carbon dioxide, you can have all the oxygen you want in your blood, but it's not going to get into the tissues. It's not going to get into the organs. So you will be oxygen starved, even though your levels are high. That's one reason why people hyperventilate Aurora, that they can pass out. Because again, they've lost the carbon dioxide. So they've got all this oxygen, you know, they're hyperventilating, right. but it's not getting right. into the brain. So that's, that's what happens there. And I just want to also mention that this is the second UK expert that we've interviewed. The first one was episode number 122, Oliver Barnett. He's a naturopath in the UK treating Lyme disease.
2: If you like what we are doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, we'd appreciate it if you would support our efforts by subscribing. Go to LimeNinjaRadio.com and you'll see the subscribe button under the featured episode.
1: Thank you, Aurora. And lastly, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day.
2: Did you know... Ninjas can hear your text messages. for considering any new treatment.